0: You're listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more information about the house and our events on our website.
1: Good evening, everyone. My name is Osela Lappogolan, and I work with the artistic program here at the House of Literature. Every time we say it can't get any worse, it does. Writer and filmmaker tsitsi Tungaramba has said about the situation in her home country, Zimbabwe. In 2020, she became a very public image of the danger of speaking out in Zimbabwe when she and her friend Julie Barnes was arrested during a peaceful protest. After a long legal battle, they were thankfully acquitted earlier this week. But still, how does that? this affect others to see what you risk when speaking out how many stay silent because of it across the world it's becoming increasingly difficult to protest governments and large corporations environmental activists are especially vulnerable according to the human rights organization global witness 200 environmental activists were murdered across the world in 2021 alone Nantle Nbutuma is the founder of the organization Amadiba Crisis Committee and has for many years been a pillar in the fight for the land and community in Pondoland on the east coast of South Africa. During these fights against the mining company, an oil company, and others, she has lost several comrades. Still, she and her community keep fighting. Looking forward to hearing from both Nontle and Titi tonight and to talk with the two of them. We have Bergdys Jules Dottir who has worked with civil society and human rights initiatives in southern Africa for a number of years. She is currently the policy director for Amnesty International Norway. Please give them all a warm welcome.
2: Thank you so much, Asel. Um, good evening, gent- uh, ladies and gentlemen. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. I'm so impressed by what the House of Literature has been able to set up this week. Um, I am uh, so um, um, happy to to uh, to have the opportunity to to talk to both Nøtla and uh, Tizi tonight, um, uh, ladies with a long-lived experience in fighting for what the majority here in Norway takes for granted um, basic human rights and uh, many of us make use of on, on an everyday basis by default without noticing. And uh, these are basic rights like the freedom of expression, the freedom to assembly, the right to protest. Uh, we enjoy a very open uh, civic space uh, which we consider to be the bedrock of an open and democratic society. Um, so I would like to start with you Citi. Um you are from Zimbabwe and also gave us a, a short uh, bio of, of of your life. But um, And I think we also can call you an official friend of Norway, because um, you were here last year, but you're also back this year. Um, and my question to you
3: would be, would, would you call yourself an activist as well? Mm-hmm. Thank you for that question. I'd like to say thank you to the Literature House for the invitation to be here together with non It's uh, uh, an honor. And to say thank you for being here this evening for this conversation. I'm sure we'll have an interesting time together. Oh, yes, now that question. I, I have to say that I am on this particular panel, I think, fraudulently because I do not consider myself an activist at all. And I have a problem with applying that word to people like myself. And I didn't know how to explain this problem until a friend of mine was introducing me at an event in England because I kept on saying, but we are all human beings, so we should all be concerned about the problems that affect us as human beings. And she said, but Sissy, the thing is, you are a writer. And the writer is concerned with the human condition and how people live and the relationship between human beings and the environment, the context that they live in. Now, if you are a dentist, you are concerned about what's in people's mouths. (laughs) You know, you are not concerned about what's outside the mouth. And so I suddenly understood why people think that I am an activist. I'm not. I'm just a storyteller. But the stories that I tell are the ones about people's struggles, their failures, their miseries, their triumphs and their happinesses. And it makes me wonder why somebody from my part of the world becomes an activist because I am telling stories, basically, giving voice. And I I find that maybe it is because the idea of a storyteller from my part of the world does not really fit into the framework of what Africa is. Because telling stories implies a kind of celebration of life, a kind of gutsy desire to, to engage and to triumph. Um, the late Chinoa Echebe called it a celebration. Mm. You see, and that does not fit the the idea that is necessary uh, from a global Western point of view with the global South. Mm. Yeah, I, I I want to follow up a bit on that because you say
2: you're giving voice, and and we do have like storytellers in Norway as well, but. Um, you know, they release their books. They um, have premieres on their films. They go to festivals and um, they go to events like this, and um, they go home. <laughs> 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 but um, but they don't necessarily get arrested. Mm-hmm. So so that's why I wanted to just kind of you know if you could you know. Tell us a bit about what's happening
3: in Zimbabwe right now. Okay, so why then would uh, a storyteller be arrested, I think is the question you're asking. Mm. Well, the reason is because voice is being captured and voice is what I I want to express. Whether um, I'm standing up and talking to other people, whether I am writing fiction uh, and having an array of characters, or whether I am teaching other people the crafts of maybe uh, fiction writing or screenwriting or filmmaking. And uh, the fact that voice is being suppressed in Zimbabwe is a very deliberate political tactic uh, to ensure that the marketplace of ideas shrinks to only those ideas that are deemed the right ideas by by the ZANU-PF organization that is currently in government in Zimbabwe. And so they have many tactics uh, to stop people giving voice, and it depends who you are and where you are. If you are a person living in a rural area, you will basically be neglected and starved. And once in a while, somebody will come and give you some rations and give you um, a little something, and you feel grateful. Um, they will give you maize seed for your next harvest if you are saying and doing the right things. They will give you fertilizer, and so that is how those people, those people's voice is changed into something that is not their voice, but something that expresses the will of the of um, ZANU-PF organization. If you are an artist in the city like me, um, they control the flow of resources. So to the rural areas, it's fertilizer, it's seed. It, for enterprises like mine, it's money. So they make sure that you do not have any resources for your enterprise, and you will find, for example, that people in film in Zimbabwe are generally uh, very connected to ZANU-PF. As far as writing goes, yes, um, that is easier to do without money, even though you have to eat. But then the whole environment is very difficult because the government has abdicated its responsibility for social services like water, electricity. So you're daily fighting with this kind of thing. Where can I get my water? Wherever you live. I mean, they have now resorted to, to sinking boreholes like right in the city in some of the most affluent uh, suburbs. And, and, and they call this a social good, ignoring the decay of the water reticulation system. And so, when I think to myself, I am having such trouble in pursuing what I need to do, which is giving voice, and it affects my ability to feed myself and to feed my children, then how much more does it affect other people? And so, this is why when, for example, a politician will, will give voice to his political expression and say, let's all go and demonstrate, I say yes, I'll do that too.
2: <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um Nondle, I I just wanted to, to cuz you 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 go, you're from South Africa, neighboring country. Um the picture uh, Tsitsi is, is 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 painting is it something that um uh, that resonates as well?
0: The uh, the issue of of suppressing voice. Um yeah, Uh, Thank you so much. Uh, Yeah, uh, quite a lot of uh, similarities as uh, she speaks. It's just like uh, bringing me the picture of South Africa because um, if um, you stand up also in South Africa uh, for the voice of the voiceless, uh, it's either you've been assassinated or you also locked up in prison Uh, those are the things that uh, it's always been taking place uh, for myself because where i am uh, is where we defending the land uh, against the extractism and to do so uh, we see the state how is so active to make sure that um, the voices of the rural communities are not being heard and uh, a lot of intimidation using their power, using the police to intimidate um, the society. That is why I said, um, yeah, it's very, very similar on what he's saying.
2: Mm. And uh, you said to me just before we we walked in here also that, well, you were telling the story about your fight. And I was wondering if you could um, give us a little recap of that but also some of the historical moments. Because I think uh, there were things that, that where you, you shared with us that also Cici wasn't aware of, that was quite
0: interesting. Oh yes, um, you know, uh, Africa, if I go a little bit, uh, was being colonized by the British. And uh, when British tried to colonize Africa as a whole, South Africa was, is part of Africa, and uh, in my small part, which is uh, Pondolent, uh, is one of the small piece, which is one is, is 100 kilometers stretch. It's the coastal area, uh, did not been uh, colonized by the British. It survived, and it was not survived because of uh, the British they forgot, or they did, they did not see. Um, it's because people, they defend. They just make sure that um, they are not going to be colonized by the British. And all that, um, what we've done uh, right now, we've just seen that the history, it repeats itself. Because right now, um, there's more uh, transnational corporations that are also discovered the minerals uh, from the same... a a land where it's part of our livelihood, where we're living for centuries, uh, where uh, after 94, because we are in a democratic state right now, but uh, the way the democratic state is doing uh, also is uh, more in favor of the transnational corporations to make sure that uh, our communities have been displaced. Uh, This is where I stood up. Together with the community to say no, this is a violation of a human rights. We cannot be displaced because here as human beings and the nature we need to live together. We are connected. And during uh, the, 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 the 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 British colony. Uh, our ancestors, uh, what they were defending is the land, which is what we're defending today. Because this, uh, there was a plan that time. Uh, it was been introduced. It was called a betterment scheme, uh, where you're going to zone the land, uh, where there's a piece of land that is dedicated for grazing land, and there's a land that is dedicated for development and, and for fields and uh, for household, you know. you And then... Uh, this is not Africa, that kind of life. Uh, the way we live, we live together with nature. But the system was pushing us to be separated from the nature. This is what is still happening today, that uh, you must displace people, uh, protected, protect that area for a certain thing. Uh, this is what they are doing today. That is why um, today uh, we are still stand up. We say no to evaluation of a human rights, no to displacement of um, a, a, a communities, because the way we live, uh, we respect nature in order for the nature uh, to keep us li- live long. Mm. But um, how, how do you kind of
2: manage to, to continue the fight? Because like, you've actually been fighting a, a particular mining company. And, uh, and you actually managed to, to win the case. Um, and, and many of us would probably kind of sit down and, and relax and think that the fight was over, but, uh, but it's not. <laughs> Can you tell us what's, ha- what's happening now?
0: Um, yeah, uh, we, we fight the mining company, which was the Australian company. They discovered the titanium in our coastal belt uh, where we we live for centuries. And uh, we ended up going to court. We organized ourselves as communities, because when uh, we, but we didn't just wake up and go to court, which is the thing that mostly people, they think when we won the case, uh, you just see the mining company and then you go to court. We did try to talk to them. But they're talking, it was not making sense or the language was not, we are not understanding each other. Now we just take them to court to the language that they're going to understand. And we warn that case that uh, the people of Pondoland or Amadiba have a right to live there and must give a free prior informed consent before any mining activities. And that judgment, it did set a precedent to all the other communities, uh, not in South Africa, but globally, because um, they were not expecting that South African uh, court can take that kind of decision. But it was very good. And then uh, after we won uh, the judgment, we were just thinking everything is over. Uh, we're celebrating and go and looking after our goats and chicken and continue our normal life as usual. Unfortunately, uh, our own government, they said that they're going to appeal that decision. And uh, since 2018, they put a notice of appeal. There's no heads of argument. Now, it means that if they just put that a pending a, 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 a issue like that they they just keep uh, uh, negotiating with the australians that they must calm down they will soften us will will we'll change our mind that's the that the, they are buying time that's what they are doing but while they're buying time uh, as i said that uh, we're thinking the fight is over there is more more and more transnational corporations that are coming right now a uh, shell Company also discovered oil and gas again to the same uh, 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 ocean, uh, the coast, the wild coast, uh, where they want to uh, drill oil and gas. And again, we resist that because if you destroy the ocean, you destroy the ecology, you destroy the lives. Uh, mostly, Developers, they don't understand that uh, when you talk about ocean, and it's not only developers, including our, our own government. Because when we said that, um, our argument, we need to be consulted before any, 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 anything that is happening to the ocean again, not just only for the land, because ocean, we are connected with the ocean, with spirituality culturally, all those things, but they don't understand that. They think only the oil and gas, that is important. And again, we take that case to court and we warn, again, uh, that shell must take it out, all their stuff, and leave uh, our ocean. And we're becoming the enemy of the state as we speak. Right now, our lives are really, really in danger because uh, every corner where the government of South Africa, uh, you meet ministers, they said that people of Pondolent must stop resisting development. Mm. And what is Mm. development? Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
2: Thank you, Nantla. Um, What I really wonder about is, is how, you know, what is the coping mechanism to kind of continue and to, 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 to go on, to keep on, you know, you win in court, they try to appeal and you, you, you know, another enemy comes in and you, you, win, you win. But then again, another threat comes.
0: Um, yeah, we win in court. Uh, what makes us coping the land. The land that we have, it feeds us. The community that is sitting on that land, we working together, we supporting each other and also the other social movement, environmental organization, they did give us a support because there is a time where we just see that uh, it's quite difficult because um, the, the state Uh, In South Africa, use everything, every power, uh, to make sure that uh, our lives are miserable. Uses the police. When these uh, meetings, like the public consultations, uh, they brought thousands of police. And the question why? It's just intimidation. And, you know, because you know that um, when you speak, you must watch your words. Otherwise, we'll sleep in in, in, in prison if um, you question so much. Those kind of intimidation that they are using us. But it was not there. Also, you know, Pondoland is one of the areas that we are self-dependent because we grow our food. We grow the Dacha. You know, the Dacha is there. And we are not even hiding. Uh, also, it's part of the other thing that they are pushing the Pondoland out of economy because right now, Dhaka in South Africa, is, it has not been legalized. We've been arrested. But they just use that as an excuse. Coming to our houses during the night, one o'clock in the morning while you're sleeping, you hear the knock on the door. So somebody says, I'm a police. Open the door. And when you said, what do you want? And he says that I'm here to look if is there any daha in your house. But they know that the dacha is in the garden. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> why, why I need to open the door? Mm. The dacha is in the garden. That's the answers that we gave it to them. That no, they, 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 the dacha is, is, is in the garden. Just look behind you because our garden is close to the houses. But um, they push to make sure that they vandalize our doors if you don't open and when they enter, they just destroy all your finisher inside says we're looking for guns. Mm-hmm. And we open those cases, but all those cases are not going anywhere mm-hmm. because um, these are intimidations that have been used uh, to make sure that we are not um, a, a, a questioning when something is wrong. And it's, it doesn't end up there because some of us, uh, oh, the leaders, have already been assassinated on this matter. Uh, the people that they call themselves police. 2016, our chairperson of our organization was being assassinated at his own home and they were wearing uniform of the police, having the blue lamp. But until today, there's no arrest. Instead, what the police are trying to do, they are just making sure that that case is not going anywhere and they are trying to close the case They said there's no evidence, there's nothing that they find to arrest. Now let's close the case. And we did all our best to make sure that the justice is going to be served for our our, our leader. But when we do that, we receive some death threats. Mm -hmm. That if you continue to follow this case, you'll follow Bazuga, which is the late... Hmm. Those are the SMSs that are coming direct. Uh, Even the cyber bullying, you know, you can't even, yeah, you can't even go to social media. Mm -hmm. Immediately when they saw me on social media, uh, this is this woman that it makes people starving. Uh, This community will never develop as long this woman is still alive. Mm -hmm. You know, all that, but uh, because of the support of the community, Mm -hmm. it gives me strength. Thank you. The, mm. city, yeah. mm.
2: the support of the community. Um, the situation in, in Zimbabwe has been deteriorating for quite some time. Um, the, the, the support of the community, is it is like the, the drive and, and, and the motivation and, and the fight against suppression, how, how, how is it framed in Zimbabwe today?
3: Thank you for that question, Bergis. I would like to ask Nongkli, you know, as a Zimbabwean, I'm hearing this for the first time about South Africa because as Zimbabweans, we know we are the country that does not have human rights, that has a government that behaves in the way that you are talking about. And the mythology in SADC is that South Africa is functioning. So why do you think it is only Zimbabwe that is labelled as a country that has such human rights abuses, but South Africa is seen as the country where uh, the government is doing its best to rule according to the law? Uh, (laughs) (laughs)
0: How, how does that happen? Um, yeah, <laughs> this is a very difficult question. Um, yeah, but I, I, I think uh, at this stage, uh, South, Afri- South Africa plays their game so well mm. uh, to look good outside. Uh, everybody, when they think of South Africa, they see a uh, very good. That is why also the other African countries they are flowing to South Africa when they they are affected by the political issues because they think South Africa is good. But when they find they arrive there in South Africa, they just see this is not the South Africa that you've seen outside. Uh, that is my answer that I can say, and also. Uh, The South African Court of Law, again, uh, it did play a a very good role Mm -hmm. to protect the human rights. That is the Mm -hmm. difference than the Zimbabwe. Mm -hmm. Because in Zimbabwe, uh, the way I understand, if you are human rights, there is nowhere to go. Mm -hmm. Uh, But in South Africa, we still have a hope Mm -hmm. that um, the court of law Uh, it did recognize the human rights Mm -hmm. as is part of the Constitution. Okay, I think that's a really important point, constitutionalism.
3: Mm -hmm. And so the judiciary is still upholding constitutionalism. And that certainly isn't what I see happening in Zimbabwe in a lot of the judiciary. Um, I think there is a big difference with Zimbabwe, as Nongle said. And... Mm -hmm. uh, the idea that there is a part of South Africa that was actually not colonised was also something I did not know. And I think a history of not being colonised really builds a different kind of sense of community and identity and a a way of life. One believes in one's own way of life. When one has been colonised, all that is stripped from you. And this is what I write about in my essays, uh, Black and Female. And so Zimbabwe suffered that. Uh, They suffered this stripping away of identity, this uh, being moved away from the land, uh, being put into areas that were totally not fertile, leaving the graves and their sacred places to be taken over by uh, farmers, commercial farmers. And of course... um, Uh, Sissel Rhodes being buried in one of the Amandevele holy places at Matopo. I mean, uh, this was an act of of, um, appropriation, even after death. Mm. Uh, And it was done on purpose, of course. So I think that uh, the Zimbabwean situation can be distinguished from your particular Pondoland situation. But then I think there's also uh, a difference in the kind of colonization that we had in Zimbabwe. Because uh, I think it was 1652 or something in in the Cape that uh, the, the first encounters with Europe began. And then the Dutch set up Cape Town as a trading port on their way from Indonesia back to Europe. And uh, then, of course, they were followed by other European nationalities and people started moving in from the Cape. So that was already in the 17th century. Um, and so there had has been a different order of encounter. And I don't really know enough about South African history, but I think there has been a longer tradition of resistance because of that and uh, uh, a longer time where people had to identify together in some way. It didn't work across the board, but at least people over these centuries realised that unless we work together, we are not going to, to, to uh, survive, we are not going to win this battle. So Cecil Rhodes brought his colonia, a pioneer column up to uh, what is now Salisbury, or was then Salisbury in 1893. So we are talking just about a century and a quarter. And so it went very quickly in Zimbabwe. And because of the advance in technology in that time from the middle of the 17th century to the end of the 19th century, uh, the brutality was very much greater than uh, was the case earlier on simply because people had had the means they had uh, better killing equipment (laughs) so (laughs) so it went quicker and it was more brutal and the subjugation was more total and i think they had also practiced in in south africa and what had happened in south africa is that they had also strong ties to the colonials in the United States. Um, the people in the United States had become leaders in mining technology because they were mining silver um, in the West and gold in California and also silver in Mexico. And there was one person in particular who began uh, this system that was then exported to uh, Africa. And he began this system in Mexico where you bring the people, the laborers, into a compound where they cannot live with their families. Um, You give them money, but they're only allowed to spend the money in the store that you have built. And they live in dormitories. They can only go out at certain times. And that system was so brutal that the Mexicans... uh, uh, Staged an uprising and this person had to flee back north and tried the same in Idaho (laughs) and the people in Idaho didn't like this either so that's when he went to South Africa in the middle of the 19th century when the diamonds and the gold had just been founded and that's where he made his fortune and so many using those same tactics and uh, he had refined them and also he had the state on his side uh, because that was the time when Cecil John Rhodes was in, was in um, uh, the Cape province. And then because of the technology that the Americans had developed, many American uh, engineering families came to South Africa and developed uh, this mining technology. So by the time they moved up, to what is now Zimbabwe. You know, they had practiced in Mexico, they had practiced in Idaho, they had practiced uh, in South Africa, and they knew exactly what they were doing. And uh, there was very little that the people could do. Uh, And it was also difficult because on the one hand, they had this charter company which had been granted by the British Crown And so the British Crown was always saying, oh, but we are watching over them to see that they do not do anything excessive. But in practice, they were allowing them whatever excess they wanted. And so by the time that the uh, charter ran out, uh, the situation of brutality had just become endemic already. So the charter ran out in 1915, And that is when a so-called civilian government was installed. But all the uh, British people who had come out, and other European people also, they had all come out to be part of this exploitative, extractive uh, charter um, society. And so Zimbabwe started off as a private company when Cecil John Rhodes came up. And I think that's very important to to understand the dynamic in Zimbabwe today, that everything was set up in order for a governing elite to extract as much as possible. So in terms of community, uh, communities were just disbanded. I know that my family used to live in one part of the eastern highlands and they were moved to another part because the part they were in was more fertile and the part that they were sent to was less fertile. And uh, the traditional structures were appropriated, so uh, families that uh, that would collaborate with the colonizers were then put into positions of authority and the old authority was taken away. And we see that the ZANU-PF organization does exactly the same thing. If uh, uh, an authority in an area does not acquiesce to them, you will find that somebody else will be put in to become the authority in that area. So there is very little sense of community. Again, with the traveling of people uh, to the cities in order to work because they had to pay taxes... So they had to go and work to get that currency. It meant that families were split up. So um, it is a society that has really been um, cut apart in many ways. And nobody has really thought about the need to heal wounds in communities. You know, And then we, we have um, international organizations coming in and saying, you need human rights. Um, <laughs> it, it, it's uh, difficult to understand completely. And then uh, people then are surprised when the people d- do not say, yes, we need human rights. But you, you can only talk about that where there is some level of cohesion. yeah. And people identify with the community, they identify with nation. Mm. But um, what we have is basically a, a, a private company running the, the country and telling everybody what to do, often on pain of death or torture, abduction, imprisonment. Mm. So but what, do, what do Zimbabweans need? Um, Zimbabwe is a really difficult situation. There are things we needed that we did not get at the right time. If you look at South Africa, for example, um, there was that scenario setting. So the decline in South Africa has not been as fast and as uh, devastating as in Zimbabwe. Um, I, what do Zimbabweans need? I think Zimbabweans need platforms where people will listen to them instead of people telling them we have come to teach you how to uh, to have gender rights, we have come to teach you how to have democracy. I think they need platforms where people will listen to them. This is our problem. How do we solve it? And this is something that Zimbabweans have never had.
2: Uh, non um I wanted to um thank you very much, Cece, by the way. It's um it's 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 really good to kind of get those long lines of history but also yeah, to kind of reflect that who who we are today is also a reflection of, of, of the past. Um and which also um you and le have kind of rightly pointed out. Um but I still wanted to kind of um move a bit into kind of your your like personal personal commitment and either you' storytellers or activists. Um, um, like what are the, what are the consequences of of the choices you mo- you make like in terms of of um, family relations and and your personal life the, the threats that you live with on an everyday basis?
0: <clears throat> yeah, um, Yeah. being a, an activist, sometimes uh, you find yourself... Mo- most people, they ask myself, how did you become an activist? I just find myself in the middle of being an activist. Uh, I, I, I didn't see myself that I'm in, but I just find myself. And uh, also, you know, the way the situation... It's so rough, uh, it's so violent. Um, it also p- pushed me uh, to, to live in, a, in my village, to stay in a safe place.
2: So you've never thought of relocating, living I in ne- exile?
0: I never thought of relocating, never. Uh, in my life, even where I'm staying right now, uh, um, I'm stressed because I'm not used to uh, the, 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 the kind of life that I used to live in a rural part uh, is the most good life for me. Because we share <laughs> love, we share pain, we share food, you know, everything, we, we work together. Now, when you being isolated, it's very painful, uh, but I uh, was no choice. I just say that if I continue to stay, uh, I will be killed, and also I'm not going to be killed alone, and I'll also be killed with my family. Now, to protect my family too, I'd rather move away from them because most cases uh, when the asylums are coming to kill and find you sitting with your family uh, in order to finish the evidence. They kill everybody. Now I decided to to stay somewhere. And uh, the way situation was so tough, I stay somewhere. And then I just tell myself that, okay, situation is hard. And uh, I was not married that time. And I was telling myself that I'm not going to marry it. That was my decision. I'm not going to marry it, because if I'm married, uh, it means that uh, there will be somebody also I'm going to put in this situation of mine, because everybody that is closer to me is going to be affected. But it's unfortunately, sometimes uh, we plan those plans, and then, <laughs> 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 uh, yeah, I, I just- the plan get, didn't work out. <laughs> yeah, um, I get married, uh, while the situation is like this, and I have a son, uh, while the situation is like this, because uh, when I was uh, alone, I was telling myself, I'm not going to give any birth, any children, because uh, the child that I'm going to pro- produce will be affected by my my fight. But um, yeah, those are the choices that I, I take, um, but I, I don't regret uh, because um, I'm staying with my family, with my husband and my son uh, right now, and they are supporting uh, the struggle. Uh, although I'm not the person that I used to be, uh, I go to community every day, uh, because even if I, I shift, I resist also, because the support was coming from um, the the environmental organization for me to, to relocate a little bit. Mm. Um, I resist to move completely. I said that uh, the only agreed for me to shift is just to move a little bit, uh, not to leave the community for good. Take a break. Uh, kind of. Yeah, I, I, I said I can't because one small space that you open Uh, you open for them to to move. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because uh, I also work so much uh, to be uh, a liaison with the the lawyers, with the legal team, when the situation is quite difficult, and also uh, with the media to make sure that um, we expose the enemy. Now, uh, if you agreed to be completely cut out, from your community, it is going to be very difficult um, to to work. That that is why I move a little bit, but to make sure that I put myself where at least uh, it's protected. Somebody is not going to enter because in the rural community where is my home, mm. there is no fence. <laughs> All the household uh, there is no fence. There is no locker mm, because um, it's a peaceful community. There is you know now uh, if you are living in a situation like that. You can just find somebody inside the house. Now, I just to say that at least where there will be a fence, somebody, I will say, in a gate uh, also, at least. Uh, but it was not enough because uh, they did try. Yeah, uh, so the
2: security issues are, are, are still, yeah, still around?
0: Security issues are um, still around. Uh, even if I, I did uh, move there, uh, they did try to enter to that house that I think is safe. This is where I just realized that the safety that I'm talking about is not enough. Uh, right now, uh, i also been supported with the bodyguards that I'm uh, going with uh, 24-7 uh, every time when I go to the community because um, the, 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 the silencer is not just only the hitmen, uh, the police in South Africa are really, really, really trying by all means. Now, uh, if the police are part of that, you need to be protected stro- to, to, to... So you have a private bodyguard? A private bodyguard, yes. Um, and I've experienced that because in one of the meetings where the Minister of Minerals and Energy was present, uh, where he brought thousands of police, also police uh, did pull me down and put the tear gas in my face, and they step on my body. Mm. If it wasn't bodyguard uh, with me, uh, I was going to be written on a face page that uh, she dead because people stamping on her, Mm. without telling the truth that the Mm. police, because the boots of the police, all of them, because when they they spray, they were directed me like here. Mm. When they just uh, shoot in the tent, to make sure that the whole uh, tent, people are going to be stand up when they just uh, 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 use this uh, stagnator. Mm. So mm. The, the, the pressure is intense and, and the,
2: the stress must be extremely high constantly. But
3: Tsitsi, but, uh, have you ever think, thought of leaving Zimbabwe? Uh, the way the Zimbabwean state operates... Um, is slightly different. I think it's because of the long history of long guerrilla engagement during the liberation struggle, and so they are experts at intimidation, and and they know how to pick off people here and there in ways that send shivers down people's spines. And uh, Zimbabweans, as I said, have not, did not have a long history of developing community resistance because of the nature of our colonization. And so um, when, people, when the ZANU-PF organization behaves like that, um, it, it has a very strong intimidatory effect on the people. And so there is not a great deal of support Um, especially for people who are storytellers. You know, we are dispensable. Mm. (laughs) According to the world, uh, we are not really needed. And so it's very easy to ignore people to death and simply ensure that no resources reach those people, that they cannot work. And this is really what I experienced. Um, Fortunately, my children are all grown now. But um, while they were young... It, it it was really hard, um, yeah. Having to 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 find ways to just keep them in school and this kind of thing, and uh, you 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 will find that um, uh, government-affiliated uh, arts organizations and people are the ones to whom resources flow, both from the international community and from the government itself. And none of those are really voicing issues that have to do with the, with, with the real deep lived experience of the people. It, it, there's a lot of frivolity. Um, so basically with me, it was a question of being sidelined and marginalized and hoping that I will leave. And so now I'm not really sure what the acquittal is. Of course, it's, it's a great burden of my mind, But one part of me thinks they're thinking, well, she should take the hint now and go. Uh, And so um, I have to see, you know, I have no security of anything. Uh, I'm finishing uh, um, a fellowship at Harvard. So that gave me an income. And before that, I had a fellowship at Stellenbosch. And then uh, I have another fellowship in Hamburg coming up. Uh, but that is not the life I had seen myself lead, uh, leading, you know, when I built up this NGO. I have uh, four young women who are permanent employees, and then I have uh, three other people who are employees, uh, plus I am running the organization. So um, I had hoped for something else, but the government had different plans Um I think around 2002 they had asked me if I would go to the Zimbabwe television broadcasting um, company as it was then. And I had to find uh, a sensible way of saying that I was doing something else at that moment. And so once you do that, uh, they know that you are not going to become one of them. And, And basically, I did not know at the time you get written off and you get blacklisted and and that is uh why it has been such a struggle so um i don't know what i'm going to do what i know that i would like to do is to continue to to develop my ngo uh where i teach uh, people uh, the craft of storytelling to release their voices but um Even in most parts of the world, it's very difficult for people in the arts. So if you are blacklisted in your own country, um, it is very difficult to survive. I just have to see. Fortunately, my children um, are German, so they qualify for all the, the German perks of the educational system there. So um, I am not really stressed financially anymore. It was more stressful financially to educate them in Zimbabwe than it is to have them at university in Germany. Yeah, I, th- I think we we don't always kind of, you know, we see
2: those fighters and those human rights defenders or activists or storytellers or whatever we call them, and we don't realize always kind of the personal costs um but one last question before we round off uh, this this evening's conversation: um, We live in an era like where there is a clear move uh, towards authoritarianism, and and the the tactics from the states is 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 to undermine democracy or so-called democracy from within. Um, they water out institutions um, so that so slowly that you sometimes don't even notice. Um, so my question is like, what should we as individuals or, or what what would you um, advise Norwegians to, to, to do? You know, what should we pay attention to? What should we guard as the most essential uh, elements of democracy in,
3: in Norway? Um, I don't really know what the political scene in Norway looks like when I come here. I see happy people enjoying life <laughs> you know, comparatively speaking, <laughs> but uh, the fact is that the planet is a unit, and i I would contest that there is democracy. I would contest that any country can say we are democratic when they are behaving in ways that do not support or that actively undermine. Democracy in other parts of the world. And I think that the more we become globalized, the more this becomes apparent. And so I have always said to people in this part of the world, be involved in your country's foreign policy. Ask your MPs what are you doing about this country? What a, don't wait for the news to tell you there is something happening in this country. Everybody can go onto the internet and decide, okay, I'm going to ask about this country because the news is already filtered by power already. So for me, I think that is one of the most important things. Uh, uh, there will never be d- democracy in any country until democracy is something that we all enjoy. And then I think we also need to think about what democracy is. Uh, Democracy is not something, it's not um, a political system that the West, uh, global West, invented in in its wonderful Internet and uh, is now exporting to the rest of the world. If we go back to democracy, it is something like what Nantle is telling us about in Pondoland, mm. actually. Mm. And so we need to remember what democracy actually is uh, and not get lost in the materiality of it, in the concept of it. Mm. Thank
2: you. <laughs> Nantle, I would, uh, do you have any advice for us Norwegians, you you know that also the Norwegian state isn't you know performing perfectly in in all follow up of all their high court rulings, for example.
0: Um. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There is not much that I can advise, but uh, what I can say uh, to advise that uh, the indigenous communities uh, also in Norway. Uh, The court of law must be respected because um, the role of the indigenous communities, uh, the way they live, they are not uh, protecting the Mother Earth only for themselves, but for all of us. Now, it's very, very important that um, the courts must take seriously uh, what the indigenous communities are seeing in court. And also, uh, I've heard that uh, Norway uh, started quite a long time uh, to have oil and gas. Uh, it's, uh, I would advise that it was a state-owned, uh, the way I've, I've, I've been told. Um, uh, but you've learned uh, the lesson. You've seen uh, the consequences of fossil fuel. Uh, If we get more people from Norway and share uh, the consequences uh, to other countries, Mm -hmm. uh, it's going to help the other countries to learn uh, that uh, this is not uh, the way of uh, living because uh, we see that the other countries are moving away from fossil fuel, but the other countries are starting to get in, Mm -hmm. you know. It means that uh, your learning, it will help the other countries like South Africa. Mm -hmm. South Africa, we are really, really jumping for fossil fuel, Mm -hmm. but we don't know what is behind. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's what um, I will be very pleased if we see more uh, people uh, to share the stories about why they think uh, the change of fossil fuel, it affects the global warming. Mm.
2: thank you thank you so much for, for spending time and, and, and sharing your experiences with us tonight um, I feel honored uh, and at the same time also a very strong obligation to, to stand firm and, and fight for the for the, for the community and, and for the voices um, uh, but also not to underestimate the, the, the power of solidarity across borders so thank you so much for joining us tonight thank you
1: so much also from the House of Literature to Tsitsi Tangaremba, to Nontlan Botuma, and to Bergtidsjordestasser. Um, this concludes the um, this week's program about decolonization and climate justice and equality. But you all have one more opportunity to see Nonte uh, before she goes back to South Africa. Um, tomorrow morning in the offices of the Norwegian People's Aid she will take part in a breakfast seminar entitled Just Transition or Green Colonialism. So you're welcome to to join her there. And you can, of course, uh, hear more from the storyteller. You can find Titi Daganembe's books for sale in the bookshop upstairs. Uh, Black and Female, as she talked about, both in English and in a very new Norwegian translation. So uh, if you want to hear more um, from that voice uh, and the voices that she's lifting up, then uh, I strongly recommend it. So now please join me in one last applause for Titi, Lantle, and uh, Thank
3: you.